Our second scripture passage is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. You know the first four notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Dun, 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 dun. And then it repeats a second time, right? It's a very ominous sound. It just comes right in. It's, it's considered by some the, the knock of fate at the door. It's a jarring sound if you've never heard it and it's played loudly. Blunt beginnings are employed for dramatic effect. You see this in a movie like Saving Private Ryan. I remember going to see the movie knowing that it was about World War II, but the very first scenes are of men on a boat landing at Normandy Beach. And the next 30 minutes are some of the most graphic and intense, mind-blowing realities of war as can be depicted in a movie. And about the end of that scene, I was ready to leave, <laughs> or at least I needed an intermission to catch my breath. That blunt smack in the face, that harshness, it jars an audience and actually sets a tone, whether it's... Beethoven's Fifth, or a movie like Saving Private Ryan, it sets the tone for the rest of what follows. The seriousness, the ominousness, the harshness. And this is how Ecclesiastes, a book of the Bible, opens. It opens very bluntly and abruptly. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Basically, nothing matters. All reality is repetitive. There's nothing new under the sun. All striving is meaningless and tomorrow we die. And for those of you who were with us the past month, you thought Job was going to be depressing? <laughs> you haven't read Ecclesiastes yet. It starts off blunt and harsh if you actually read it. It's, it's like Reveille waking us out of our slumber, saying, do you really know what life is about? Have you actually thought about it? Or are you just sleepwalking? Wake up! 
And if you read this whole section that we just had read, and you've grown up in the church, you have to ask, is this actually in the Bible? Who wrote this? And are we supposed to believe it? The author, it, he states it clearly in verse 1 and verse 12, is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. It's Solomon. He calls himself here and throughout the book the preacher. Uh, the, basically, the preacher is a term that's, that means a gatherer of wisdom in that culture. He was the gatherer of wisdom, but it's also Solomon, the king. And he explains in these first couple of verses what he's going about to do. We see it there in verse 13, what he does. His methodology is laid out in verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I want to figure it out. I want to seek wisdom by looking everywhere. And the question he's asking is found in verse 3. This is the question of the whole book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And don't think about that just as your occupation. It's anything you're after striving for. What does it gain a human by everything that we live for? He's asking the big questions of why. And as you read through the whole story and everything that he lays out, we get that this is the perspective. It's the perspective of Solomon as a skeptic and a seeker. At least at this stage in his career, at, at this stage in his life, he is Solomon the skeptic, trying to figure out how everything lines up in the world in which he lives. He says, I have these promises of God, I, I know this God, but when I look around the world, that's not how it seems to play out. Just from what I observe, everything that I see and everything that I'm looking at, I'm going to figure out what I can figure out by looking around me. And he's asking, as a skeptic and a seeker at this stage, the big questions, the why questions, the meaning of life and of human identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What purpose is all of this? And where's it all going? Towards what end? Some of you might be saying, who cares? <laughs> Why even ask a question like that? What's the meaning of life, right? Well, purpose and meaning are important because they actually are behind what motivates us to do things and how we make decisions. As an example, um, training camp for a football team is the month before the season starts. And you'll often, in let's say a high school team, have two weeks uh, or two or three weeks of intense two-a-day practices where you're just exhausted. If you get a couple days into that and you don't know why you're doing it, you might say, this is dumb. I'm not going to do another push-up. I'm not pushing that sled again. I'm not going to keep doing this. But if you know that your purpose is to win games, if what's behind you is I want to be successful, or if your identity is, I am an athlete who is a winner, then you will work hard and motivate everyone around you to work hard, even though what you're doing seems painful. Or take another way of thinking about this. If you're in a mundane job, a job you don't particularly love, why would you stay in that job? Well, if for you, financial security matters, that's the main thing, then you're going to stay in that job. Or... If the reason you live is for your family, 
If that's what you're here for, that's your aim, is I want my family to be happy. That mundane job provides for them. You're going to stay in it. It will motivate you to do things. Those why questions help us to determine what's important, how to live, how to make decisions, and how to keep going. In Ecclesiastes, we get the author trying to figure out why. And he gives us his, his, the sum of his argument in these first verses. In verses 5 through 7, he, he gives an argument from creation, from the natural world. The sun rises and goes down. The wind seems to blow all over the place. The streams fill up the sea, and yet the sea never gets any fuller. As I look around the natural world, he says, creation is repetitive. That's what I see. I'm trying to figure out what meaning is creation is repetitive. Then in verse 9 and 10, there is nothing new under the sun. History is repetitive, he's saying. You could say, oh, I found something new. No, it's, it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. In verse 4, he puts humanity under the microscope. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth, or rather only the earth, remains. Nothing lasts. In verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. In other words, everything is repetitive, nothing matters, and death ends it all. He's looked around, and that's what he's determined. We see it again most explicitly in the question and answer of verse 3 and verse 2. What does it gain? What does a man gain in verse 3? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity is the answer. And just looking at these phrases, that word toil, I mentioned it before, it can mean labor or effort, but I think a best way to understand it is striving. What, what good is all of our striving, what we pursue in life? And the answer, vanity, vanity, I don't love that, that translation. It, it's literally smoke or a vapor. Some people translate it as futility or absurdity. The NIV, I think, gets it close to something that's helpful for us, which is meaningless. And by repeating it, he's saying it's absolutely, utterly meaningless. So I've looked around at creation. I've looked around at humanity. I've looked over history. I've looked everywhere you can look, says Solomon. And here's what I've determined. When it comes to why we go after the things we do and strive after them, at least from observation, it is utterly meaningless. We see his conclusion in verse 14. I have seen everything that is under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Life is meaningless, and then we die. It's no wonder that skeptics and atheists think this is their favorite book of the Bible. They really do. You can go look online. It's the favorite book of atheists. The one book they're like, oh, hey, there's a good one here. And that viewpoint that Ecclesiastes gives us sounds very harsh. And I think it's helpful to recognize that it is the viewpoint of a skeptic 
who is trying to look at things almost detached from God. And the reality is that that is actually an undergirding worldview today. It is what stands behind what we think and believe today as modern Western Americans. In other words, if you have no thoughts to check what you think, if you grow up in the United States or anywhere in Western uh, Hemisphere, you are going to believe this basic viewpoint, or you might not actually believe it, but it's beneath what you believe. Let me explain how this goes. We're going to go into a little bit of philosophy, which is not my forte, so I might, if you're a philosopher, be you know, butchering all of this. But I'm going to try to get you to where we are today, help you to understand a little bit about our secular relativistic worldview, which is an American thing, and what's underneath of it, and why it's important to ask the why questions. Okay, so currently we live in what you would call a secular worldview, a secular world, right? That goes back to the Enlightenment. The scientific revolution comes along and the discovery is everything that you can observe and figure out with your hands, your eyes, experimentation is what will help you to understand things. Hume, a philosopher 300 years ago, was the first one who recognized that if you go down the route of the scientific method, you can figure out what is but not what ought to be. In other words, I can determine how to do something but not why we do it. The scientific method can only answer is, not ought. In other words, it can answer this question. It can tell you you can split an atom, but not whether you should. Or once you do, where you should then split that atom. In a electric factory or over Hiroshima? Science can't tell you that one. It can just tell you how. Is, but not ought. Over 100 years later, Nietzsche came along. He's the grandfather of modern philosophy, the one who basically birthed it with this reasoning. Science and reason cannot prove not only what's good and bad, but it can't prove God or heaven. And since there's no such thing that you can prove as God, heaven, absolute truth, there's no such thing as objective meaning and purpose. In other words, when you ask the why question, you can't say, well, here's why, because God says so. Well, you can't prove that. Nietzsche was right. You can't. And he went on to say, so the only things that govern what we do are our feelings or our thoughts or things we call faith. So you could say something's true or good or right because you think it is, you feel it is in your emotions, or you believe it in some thing that you believe in that you can't prove exists. And he went on to say, everyone must therefore determine identity, meaning, and purpose on their own. Fast forward 50 or 60 years, and that's what every university in the West has been teaching. And it's our current culture, which you call secular relativism. Secular relativism is the central core assumption of every American. And at its foundation is individualism and personal liberty. Individualism and personal liberty. And if there is no God, it makes sense because I am at the center of everything. Our modern worldview, which all of us actually assume unless something pushes against us, against it in us, 
is that everyone must construct a meaningful life for themselves, right? If I were to say, well, you know, should anybody be allowed to do this or that? Well, you gotta construct your own meaningful life. It's even how we train our kids. Well, find something that you're after and go for it, right? We want them to pursue something on their own to make a meaningful life for themselves. The highest good in our cultural moment is the freedom to do what makes you happy, to be yourself. It's born out of a philosophy that questions authority. It says there is no proof that there is a meaning of life or a God. So we're left to discover it on our own. The highest good is the freedom to do what makes you happy. Now the problem with this is when you strip out absolute truth or God, who's to say whether what makes you happy is right or not? For example, to some people, what makes them happy is caring for people. For others, what makes them happy is eating other people. Which one is right and which one is wrong? Mother Teresa, Jeffrey Dahmer. Huh. Who's to say? Well, you might object and say, well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Everyone knows it's wrong to eat people. Who says? On what grounds? Okay, well, how about this grounds? How about this grounds, Johnny? On the grounds that all of us collectively, we form a society and we make laws and we say it's illegal to eat people. But if collective conscience is what determines right or wrong, where does that go? Ask the comfort women in Imperial Japan. Ask a black man in Jim Crow South. Ask a Jew or a homosexual or a gypsy or a Slav in Nazi Germany. Just because the entire society agrees something is okay does not make it so, or does it? Nietzsche was right. Without absolute truth, without God, without something greater than all of us, even things that we value so much like freedom and equality are totally subjective. There's no proof that they are right. The other problem with this secular and relativistic worldview is that many of us as Christians are basically religious secularists. That is, we unknowingly blend contradictory ideas and claims of Christianity and a secularism. For example, we assume individualism even in the way that we approach Christianity, right? When it comes to Christian doctrines, each of us chooses which ones to opt into and which ones to opt out of. We want it to be a buffet. I don't know if any of you have been to a Golden Corral recently. It was my favorite place to go when I was in college because for like $4.99, you could eat 600 different items. And so if on a given day, I wanted to go and just to the dessert table, I could go straight dessert and have 20 to 40 options. You could carb load, meat load, or go to all 600 different options for $6.99. But it was up to me at the buffet. 
very different than if you go to a very fine dining restaurant. The French Laundry is considered one of the best restaurants in America in Napa Valley. It sits out there, and if you go there, you will find a menu, and the menu is fixed, designed by the master chef who says, these are the eight courses that you will eat in this order. Which one is more satisfying, do you think? Golden Corral or the French Laundry? And yet, again and again, we think the Golden Corral is the highest good. Let me give you an example of how this might play out in our Christian duplicity, right? Picking and choosing which things to opt in and out of. Which is a bigger problem in America today? Sexuality or wealth? When it comes to sex, should you be able to do what you want or should you do what God says? How about when it comes to your money, your possessions, what you spend your money on? Should you be able to do what you want with your money or do you hand it all over to God? you really want to do what he says. The question is really this, is God chosen by us or is he revealed to us? Who is actually God? Okay, we've been up here and some of you might be saying, what in the world are you talking about? Who cares? Does this even matter? And I say, yes, it does. And let me give you a couple reasons why I think it matters for us as Christians and us as a church. One is at some point in your life, you might have an existential crisis. What is that? That's when you say, why do I exist? You might not have it right now. You might live perfectly happy in the life that you're living. But at some point, you might say, I don't know why I'm doing this. Does this all matter? It might be when you finally get to everything you've thought you wanted the house, the family, the career, and then you say, is this all there is? Before you get to that crisis point, think about it. Much like there's a benefit to doing a theology of suffering before you get the diagnosis. A second reason why thinking about these thoughts is helpful is because of hypocrisy. Many of us as Christians subscribe to multiple and conflicting worldviews. And here's the case. Skeptics in the world see it, and they see our duplicity, our hypocrisy, and our contradictions, and they reject our Christianity because of it, and our kids do the same thing. And the third is the negative effect that our secular Christian buffet style of religiousness has on the church global and our culture in particular we are adding to the chaos and the culture wars and the hopelessness of people in our culture instead of revealing the God who is creator and redeemer as a, and, and living out a grace-centered community that displays the hopeful, life-transforming gospel. We could have an impact, but instead we're adding to the chaos. It's important to think about these bigger questions. If you are not a Christian in here today, or if you're in that place that you're just doubtful about all this, skeptical, 
struggling with this whole trust and faith in God and the life and world you see and everything you've observed, you have good reason to be skeptical. When Solomon looks around and says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, and Nietzsche says, that's right, there is nothing, you can have intellectual integrity by going all the way into that. But if you're still struggling and seeking, I would ask this question on that definition of the world in which we live. Is it actually true that life is meaningless? Does that answer satisfy you? Even though underneath of the worldview of modern Americans is a rejection of absolute truth in God, most Americans, most Americans live as if life has meaning. Is this because we are dishonest with ourselves or because we are dumb? It's possible that like Homer Simpson or Spicoli or one of these great characters in film, we're just idiots who don't really realize that life is meaningless, but we go on as if it has meaning. Rearranging the deck chairs, if you would. Or perhaps we're like toddlers in their playground games. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. Or if I imagine a world that's wonderful, it must be wonderful. Perhaps we're just dumber than we think we are. Or if you go from a purely scientific reasoning perspective on this thing, perhaps the reason why most Americans live as if they're meaning is an evolutionary process. It's biochemical reaction of your body causing a survival technique that, that causes your body to, to create ideas that maybe there is meaning, but there isn't any meaning, but our bodies are meant to be woven that way so that we can work hard at things and we don't die. It's really just a biochemical evolutionary survival technique. It's tricking ourselves into working hard. Or maybe the reason why every American, every person on earth, lives as if there is meaning, even if their life doesn't actually fill that out, is because deep down in, we know that life does have meaning. That deep downside is your spiritual dimension. It's the side that at least in this first chapter, Solomon does not put his finger on and Nietzsche was not willing to go near. That potentially there is more than what we think or feel, see, hear, and observe. Perhaps there is a spiritual dimension. Everything about the way that we live our lives would suggest that maybe, just maybe, there is a spiritual dimension, that we have a soul and that God created us and we are made to find communion with him not only now but always. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 1.8 had this summary. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, all that we try and fill our lives with in this life is not enough. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fill. That's right. Because we're made for more than this life. We are made for more than this life. The contradictions and incoherence 
of a totally subjective approach to life longs for intention and order and direction and purpose and design and a designer and truth. That's what we long for. There's a phrase that's on the etched in many buildings across the U.S., particularly university buildings. The truth will set you free. You can see this on university buildings from San Francisco to Austin to Charlottesville. It's a little bit ironic. What it's implying when it's on these university buildings is we can discover truth by gaining knowledge and then be set free. By knowledge, we will gain truth and be free. The preacher in Ecclesiastes and Nietzsche and any honest atheist would tell you, nope, you can look all you want, you can study all you want, fill your head with all sorts of knowledge, but there is no truth to find. There is no meaning. The Bible says, to be free, you do need to know the truth. But the truth is not something you simply search out on your own with knowledge. The truth has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The foundational truth is what Jesus reveals about the God of the universe. That God made us and loves us. That God came to be one of us in order to die for us and for our sins. And that because of his death, God offers us forgiveness of all that we've ever done wrong and the hope of eternal life. Jesus redefines identity and purpose and meaning. You, because of Jesus, are a child of God. You have inherent worth and value because God made you and God loves you. You have purpose to follow and know the God of the universe and live out the life that he has designed for you. And you have an aim to glorify and enjoy him not only now, but forever, to enjoy God now and forever. There is purpose and aim and identity. But the purpose and aim and identity that are found in Christ, that objective purpose, aim, and identity, is very different than what most of us live out. Here's some of how a true life lived is described. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Or what Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I am the way and the truth and the life. If you abide in my word, in other words, if you abide in me, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and that is the truth that will set you free. Does all of that sound like the answer to your why questions? Does that describe your purpose and meaning, your identity, your aims? The aim of this Ecclesiastes series and this Lenten season is three. One, I want us not only today but over the coming weeks to examine ourselves honestly. My life and my worldview, is it something I've discovered on my own or has it been revealed by God? 
chosen by me or built on Christian teaching. Secondly, I want us to identify our first loves. What or who besides God competes for the primary purpose in my life? Who or what is my actual Lord and Savior? And thirdly, I want us to seek God wholly in these coming weeks. Pray that God would reveal himself to me and that I may see and taste and experience him fully. So let's pray for that. God, the skeptic in Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And if we are honest, many of the ways we make decisions would say the same thing. Give us eyes to see where we put our trust in other things. And if you are real, reveal yourself to us. May we see you fully and find our life in you, our maker and redeemer. Amen. Set man gaze on God alone and trust in Him completely. With every day, pour out my soul, and He will prove His mercy. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sign too brief to measure, my King has crushed the curse of death. Yeah.